an official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 89, Fame and Fortune. Last time, Professor Muller and I covered Churchill's life from September 2nd, 1898 until November 15th, 1899. And in those 14 months, Winston managed to squeeze in what would be, for some of us, a lifetime of excitement and danger. But as the future would show, the young patrician was just getting started. During those months, Winston managed to complete his two-volume work, The River War, finish his first novel, Savrola, which displayed, for those who knew him well enough, his ego and perhaps how he saw himself. But it also showed his complete ignorance of women and love. His girlfriend, Pamela Plowden, had been experiencing this gap in Churchill's character firsthand for some time now. Winston certainly cared for her and probably pictured a future with her, but he was busy at the moment creating his own future, which left him little time for her in the present. He also sailed halfway around the world to compete in a polo match with his brother officers before retiring from the army and had been instrumental in their victory. Churchill then went on to fight in a closely run race in Oldham, Lincolnshire, but lost by 1,300 or so votes. His talent as a speaker was now honed, but he had a ways to go before becoming a good politician. As the Second Boer War got underway, Churchill readied himself for the trip, first by securing a very favorable contract with Borthwick's Morning Post as a war correspondent, and secondly, by taking along at least 96 bottles of various spirits. Priorities, you know. Upon landing, Churchill interviewed people and realized this war was not going to go the way of battles fought before in India. The Boers were equally equipped as the British, and also equally, if not more so, motivated. After all, they were fighting for freedom. And then, on November 15, 1899, Churchill climbed aboard the ill-fated armored train, commanded by his friend, Haldane. The train was ambushed on its return trip. The engineer cowered, only going on after being urged by Winston, who convinced him that no man has ever nearly died twice in one battle. Churchill managed to save many wounded soldiers, but was himself captured when he went back to rescue more. He was then marched, along with other prisoners, about 60 miles to the north until they reached Pretoria and were settled into a state school converted into a prison for officers. A lot can be learned about a person when they are imprisoned. Their reaction to having their freedom taken from them, their very survival under the control of someone else, allows or even demands one's true nature to emerge. For Churchill, 
It only took a week. After that, he was arguing with his fellow inmates, their whistling bothering him to distraction. In fact, loud noises of any kind caused Winston to launch a verbal attack on its author. What the other men could not know, and probably wouldn't care about, was that Winston needed outside stimulation to help him get through or ignore his melancholia. He needed to be able to exert some control over his life or would collapse in upon himself. But in his current environment, his tendency was to explode rather than implode. After a week of bitter infighting and snarling at others close by, Churchill convinced himself that his captivity was illegal and so petitioned to be released. But then, working against him, were news reports that soon came out as his fellow war correspondents had interviewed the survivors of the train ambush who spoke highly of Churchill's bravery and, more importantly, his actions. His pleas for leniency were thwarted by his heroics. He also found out he was being considered for the Victorian Cross. Knowing Churchill, he undoubtedly wanted the honor and his freedom at the same time. As his captors let him post letters, Winston wrote to his mother, urging her to make good his release. Jenny went into action, but found the situation more complicated than imagined. Winston also wrote to Pamela, saying, quote, Not a very satisfactory address to write from, although it begins with P, unquote. Jenny's former lover, Burke Cochran, even got a letter from the celebrity prisoner, saying, quote, I am 25 today. It is terrible to think how little time remains, unquote. Again, Churchill had convinced himself that he would die relatively young, and whatever he was going to do with his life had to be done by 1920. Fortunately for the many, the individual was wrong. The letter campaign back home, centered around Jenny, His Royal Highness, and Cochrane, eventually worked. How could it not? Enraging a powerful country that one is already at war with is not considered a well-placed step. The deluge of letters had their intended effect. The Boers' Commandant General, Piet Jobert, who initially decided that Churchill would not be released, advised his President Kruger of his new exact opposite decision on December 12th. His reasoning was never made clear, but we do know this. Jobert later told his peers that as Churchill was an English gentleman, and since they never lie, that Winston must have been speaking the truth when he said his actions at the train were only of escaping, not offering resistance. Not that it mattered. On that same day, December 12, 1899, the day it was decided to release Churchill, Winston had already decided to release himself. The daring plan for this escape was not Winston's. He overheard Haldane and a regimental sergeant major, a Brocky, discussing it. As the sergeant major spoke Afrikaans, developed from 17th century Dutch and the native Bantu language, he was hoping to climb the wall and make his way east to Portuguese-controlled territory. Churchill overheard them and demanded to be taken along. Brocky wanted no part of this unpredictable war correspondent, but as he was not an officer, even though the plan was his, he had no say in the decision. Such is the privilege of rank. As they were to escape on December 12th, Churchill, being Churchill, 
wrote a taunting letter to his captives the day before. In his letter, he explained that he was escaping because he felt the Boer undersecretary never had a right to hold him. So, he was taking matters into his own hands. He then taunted them by saying he had had outside help. Let them tear each other apart, looking for the non-existent traitor. But then, being a British gentleman, he ended the letter with thanking his hosts for their kindness, and promised that only a truthful account would be put out by him when he got home. Then, turning sincere, he hoped this ghastly war would be over soon. But of course, being Churchill, he signed off with, quote, Regretting the circumstances have not permitted me to bid you a personal farewell, unquote. That night, the three men took turns heading to the bathroom near a section of the wall. The bathroom's location blocked any searchlight from hitting the wall behind it, and the guards of this section were more lax than others. However, that night, as each man went to the privy, the guards were eyeing them warily. But when Churchill entered the bathroom and approached the wall, the guard turned away to light his pipe. Winston, never one to hesitate, scaled the wall in seconds. Now he just had to wait for the others. But for whatever reason, they never joined him. Churchill, waiting for over an hour, decided to leave before the sun rose that morning. In his pockets were four pieces of chocolate, 75 pounds, and a few biscuits. Ahead of him was 300 miles of enemy territory. Churchill set out. Instead of panicking and running through town, Churchill strolled through Pretoria. Luckily, no one recognized him. He eventually came upon a railroad track and followed it to the train station. He knew he had to get out of there by sunrise when he would be missed, and a search started. When the next train came and stopped, he climbed aboard and hid himself within a massive pile of empty coal bags. He had no idea where the train was heading, just that it was leaving town. He was soon asleep. He awoke before sunlight and knew he had to leave the train, so he jumped off, drank what water he could from puddles, and hid out in a ditch during the daylight. High above him, a vulture circled, quote, who manifested an extravagant interest in my condition, unquote. His plan was to follow the tracks that headed east and make for freedom, but it soon dawned on him that every railroad bridge was guarded. There was a war on. He would just have to board another train, hope he wasn't found out, and that it went east. But as he was closing in on a freight car, Winston heard voices, and so ran into the plains. He walked on until he saw some lights, and thinking it was the village of Kafir Kral, he headed towards it. Instead, it turned out to be a few dozen houses and buildings centered around the entrance to a mine. Looking at the darkened houses, Churchill picked one at random and knocked on the door. A man opened it with a pistol in his hand. Churchill gave the man a cock-and-bull story about being lost. The result? The pistol was aimed squarely at his gut. Winston decided it was best to come clean. Quote, I am Winston Churchill, war correspondent for the Morning Post, unquote. The man digested this new story and eventually told the stranger to come in. After food and drink, the man, he introduced himself as John Howard, manager of the Transvaal Collieries, explained to the shocked Churchill 
that he had somehow picked the only house within miles that would have not gladly turned him over to the authorities. There were other men in the house. They all worked for Howard. In fact, one of them was from Olden, the district that had just recently turned away the hopefully parliamentarian candidate. But the man said, quote, they'll all vote for you next time, unquote. The plan Howard came up with was to hide Churchill in a mine until they could safely move him out. So they put down a mattress and gave Winston two candles, cigars, and some whiskey. After getting some sleep, Churchill felt guilty for putting these men in danger. If they were discovered helping him, they would be shot outright. But Howard replied that he, Winston, could be shot as well. Just hours before Churchill showed up at his door, a Boer officer had come around asking about the escaped prisoner. And that wasn't the worst of it. By now, Churchill's escape had been discovered, and Jobert, who felt betrayed by Winston, had set the word out far and wide to find the war correspondent, and if he resisted with violence, to shoot him. Churchill stayed in the cave for four days, battling rats and boredom. Then Howard hit Churchill in his office. He stayed there for another three days. It was then, Howard told Churchill, he finally had formed an escape plan, one he felt good about. Getting the help of Charles Burnham, a local shipping agent, Churchill would be put aboard a train, moving a consignment of wool. The goal was to get him to Portuguese East. They started out on Tuesday, December 19th. Beside Churchill, between the bales of wool, were two roasted chickens, slices of meat, bread, and three bottles of cold tea. Churchill, not reacting well to not being in control, memorized the towns he would pass by so he could gauge his progress. But the space in between the bales was not enough to see the signs. So Churchill, literally in the dark, became more and more frustrated as the days went by. Burnham, not feeling good about Churchill's prospects while alone, climbed aboard the train as it got underway. And it was a good thing for Winston, too, who would not have made it without the shipping agent's knowledge, smooth talking, and financial wherewithal to bribe. At their second stop at Middleburg, an agent wanted to shunt the cars for the night. He was paid off by Burnham. The car carrying Winston stayed attached. Other stops presented obstacles for Burnham as well, who overcame them with money and charm. But once they passed into Portuguese East Africa and should have been safe, they faced their strongest opponent in the form of an honest man. No money or offer of drinks would change the station manager's mind that the cars would be uncoupled, but would follow up the train no more, the man said, than by an hour. Burnham had no choice but to move on with the train to Lorenco Marquis, the main port city on the Delagoa Bay and prepare for Churchill's arrival with more bribes and hope for the best. The honest station manager was as good as his word. Churchill's wool-laden chariot arrived 30 minutes after Burnham leapt off the train. The escaped prisoner was so happy after climbing out of the car, completely covered in coal dust, that he raised his pistol into the air and let off a few rounds in the spirit of feu du joie. Burnham rushed over to the celebrating pigpen and dragged him to the British consulate. But even then, Winston's journey had not come to an end. After he banged on the front door, an underling of the consul opened up, 
took one look at the mess in front of him and said, quote, Be off. The consul cannot see you today. Come to his office at nine tomorrow if you want anything, unquote. Winston, knowing he could still be picked up by anyone wanting to claim the reward, stepped back a bit, looked up at the second-story window, and bellowed, quote, I am Winston Bloody Churchill. Come down here at once, unquote. Within hours, Churchill was bathed, dressed, and had bought a rig and a cowboy hat. He had also sent out many telegrams. So soon, Jenny, Pamela, and his editor knew he was alive and free. Then, being Churchill, Winston read through the newspapers. It was all bad news. The British were being pushed back on all fronts, and Buller was guilty of not using his advanced weaponry and fighting like the dervishes. His casualties in front of Ladysmith were staggering. Churchill, of course, seeing only how the world affected him, considered rejoining the army and turning the tide. But, as anxious as Winston was to lift British pride through victory, Consul Ross was equally determined to rid himself of Churchill, currently the most famous escaped prisoner in the world. After all, there were many Boer partisans about, and rumors floated around that Churchill was going to be kidnapped and returned to Transvaal. But on December 21st, an armed group saw Churchill off on the steamer Induna, and within 48 hours, he disembarked at Durban, on the east coast of South Africa, where a large crowd waited for him, carried him on their shoulders, and demanded a speech. Churchill, caught up in the mood, gave them one about victory and the irrepressibility of the British Empire. Taking a train back to Natal, Winston spent that Christmas of 1899 with other war correspondents, about 100 yards away from where his train had been ambushed. It was there that Churchill first heard that Germany might consider jumping into the fray on the side of the Boers. That was the last thing Buller needed. The general wrote back to London, saying he was unable to lift the siege of Ladysmith without more troops. They were on their way, but so was Buller's replacement. Lord Frederick Roberts was en route with his chief of staff, Kitchener. Buller, who would remain in South Africa, but with a demoted rank, made one last command decision. He gave Churchill a commission after the young man asked for one. Buller did know of the new rule, which Winston himself inspired, that no soldier could act as a correspondent at the same time. But the outgoing general, perhaps in a fit of, what are they going to do, demote me, agreed to Churchill's request. Winston was made regimental assistant adjutant under Colonel Julian Bing, or Bungo, of the South African Light Horse. But until Lord Robert arrived, Buller was still in charge, and so pursued the war, with very little effect. Churchill said and wrote nice things about the general, but that was more ingratitude than reflecting on his capabilities as a leader. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. 
You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. On January 10th, 1900, after being repulsed on the Tagila River, the British seemed to be in a daze. Never before had they suffered such casualties. In days gone by, the fighting had always been fierce, but short, with relatively few casualties at least on their side. But what they couldn't see, or didn't allow themselves to see, was that the business of war had taken another revolutionary turn, and one would think that, as the British Pyre was on the cusp of the wave, they would have figured out that the Boers, like them, were using machine guns and distant long toms that lobbed 40-pound, 4.7-inch shrapnel shells at the British cavalry, way before those dashing men could even get close to engaging. But there was more. The Boers, using equally advanced weaponry, had altered or augmented their tactics to suit their strategy. Foxholes, barbed wire, and sandbag emplacements had all but negated an effective charge of cavalry. But still, cavalrymen like Douglas Haig stuck to their ideas and believed that with more men riding faster, fighting harder, would undo the enemies. As one slaughter followed hard upon the next, the British officers were convinced that that particular day of infamy would be remembered. But as the carnage built up, the names of those places of slaughter, Hussar Hill, Mount Alice, Conical Hill, Alo Knoll, would end up whirling by like flashes of scenery out of a train window. Yet Churchill survived it all, as did Mahatma Gandhi and the group of stretcher bearers he worked with. In the middle of this ugly war, the Churchills celebrated a bit of a family reunion. Jenny had raised just over 40,000 pounds and commissioned a hospital ship called the Maine. On board was Winston's younger brother Jack, aged 19, who now, thanks to the elder Churchill, had received a commission as well in the South African light horse. But for all the times that Winston had escaped death or even injury, the god of war Mars decided it was time for some payback. Jack was lying down relaxing after an engagement, while Winston was walking around completely oblivious to his safety, when the younger of the two was hit by shrapnel in the calf. Jack was soon back aboard his mother's hospital ship, but this time in a different capacity. Winston expressed his guilt over Jack to Jenny. Although the British did not change their tactics to suit the terrain or the advances in technology, their numbers wore on the Boers. Attrition, although the ugliest of tactics, still worked. And Winston had been in the thick of it almost every day. So, when the British cavalry rode into Ladysmith on February 28, 1900, its siege lifted 
Churchill was among those of the first two squadrons to enter. And in Ladysmith, Churchill would stay for just over a month, while he began another book about his experiences, entitled London to Ladysmith via Pretoria. Yes, there was a war going on, but this was a good decision for him personally. With his escape, he was now a celebrity, and sales of his other books skyrocketed. Savrola sold 8,000 copies, The River War all 3,000 copies that had been printed, and 600 more copies of the Malacan Field Force. So now, in the midst of this war, Churchill had his own war chest for any future political position he chose to contest, and he already knew where that would be. He had been contacted by conservatives, asking him to return and run with them, but Churchill turned them all down. First, he wanted to stay in South Africa, at least while the war continued, because he felt he could increase his stature here, with his fighting and then writing about it. Secondly, he had learned from losing the first time that a bit of planning seemed wanted when standing for election. That's not to say he became cautious. Winston never learned that characteristic. To prove the point, he wrote more and more for a case of leniency for the rebels when this war was over. This ran counter to those back home who read the ever-enlarging casualty lists. But Winston persisted in his belief, nonetheless. Now, putting this war with its thousands of casualties on the back burner for a moment, Churchill now faced a more personal conflict. Lord Roberts, or Bobs, as Kipling called him in a little ditty, was now in South Africa and ready to move north. But due to Kitchener pouring leprous distillment into the field marshal's ear, the overall commander was set against the soldier-slash-war correspondent. Still, the niceties had to be observed, and during the second week of April, Roberts let it be known that Churchill could accompany his forces as he made his way against the stubborn enemy. Churchill seethed with anger, but acting out now would not do him any good, so he vented only when it was safe to do so, and joined his friend Ian Hamilton, now an acting lieutenant general, who was leading a column protecting Bob's left flank. Along in the column was Churchill's cousin Sonny, otherwise known as Charles Spencer Churchill, the ninth Duke of Marlborough. He was Hamilton's aide. Together, they all set off for Pretoria. By now, Winston had received letters from Pamela and Joe Chamberlain, telling him he had done his bit, now come home. After all, dying, even in the last stages of a war, still meant his corpse could not stand for election. But whether from arrogance of youth or believing in his lucky star, Churchill remained and tempted fate beyond all trying. He was almost captured again when, forty miles from Blofontein, he was riding with mounted scouts trying to beat a group of Boer horsemen to the top of a hill. The Boers won and vastly outnumbered the British who retreated in good order. But Churchill's horse made off without him as he tried to mount. The others were mostly gone, and the Boer riflemen started shooting at Winston, the nearest target. Winston reached for his Mauser, but then saw a lone British rider a bit further away. Quote, death and revelation, but life to me, unquote. Winston ran towards the man, yelling for a hand to lift him up. The man hesitated, but then extended his own. They dashed away, and Winston reached around the man to grab the horse's mane to help steady himself. 
His hands, when pulled back, were covered in blood. He realized the horse had been hit. When they were safely away, the man wailed about his horse, almost crying. Winston tried to make him feel better. Quote, never mind, you saved my life, unquote. But the man replied, quote, ah, but it's the horse I'm thinking of, unquote. Well, Churchill had nothing to say to him after that. They rode on in silence. This was just the latest of many times that Winston should have died, or at least been injured, but came away without a scratch, as if fate was saving him for something. As Lord Roberts moved north, he had in all about 200,000 troops under his command, and as the Boers had never fielded more than 88,000, it came down to numbers and time. Of course, Roberts was still acting with prudence. He did not want to go the way of Buller. The first objective was Johannesburg, just south of the capital, Pretoria. Roberts headed there with Hamilton on his left. Johannesburg was about to be invested, and Hamilton had just engaged and defeated a force placed in front of him to the west of the city. Hamilton needed Roberts to know his left flank was clear so he could move on the city. After that, they could then approach the school-slash-prison the British officers and their troops were being held in. But a courier would have to swing wide to the south of Johannesburg, making sure they weren't captured or killed. That added 80 miles to their route, and time was important. In steps Churchill, who just finished interviewing a Frenchman who claimed to have just left Johannesburg on his bike. He said the Boers were leaving, and it would be nothing to ride right through the city and make their way to Robert's position. Winston took his proposal of riding through Johannesburg with the Frenchman as his guide, carrying Hamilton's dispatch to the main forces leader. Hamilton, knowing Churchill, amused by his c'est la vie attitude, agreed. Of course, he had a copy made of the dispatch, which would be taken along the longer but safer route, just in case. Hamilton couldn't help but ask what Churchill would do if they were stopped. Churchill replied he would simply converse with the Frenchman in French and thus show he was not British. Keep in mind that Winston's French, although better than mine, retained all the ending consonants in his pronunciation. The two set off on their bicycles and had no problems until they reached the city. Then they noticed a horseman with his hand on his gun following them. The Frenchman became nervous, but they couldn't stop. It would alarm the horseman who was riding beside them as they pushed their bikes up a steep hill. Winston, ignoring the gunman, started talking casually to his friend with his perfectly awful French. The boar, presumably, knowing less French than me, heard the strange but obviously not English language and eventually rode away from the pair. The two cyclists then made their way to the outskirts of Robert's army. Churchill was taken directly to the field marshal. Bombs read the dispatch, obviously pleased, and then asked, quote, How did you come? Unquote. Churchill replied nonchalantly, quote, Through Johannesburg. Unquote. Bob's eyes twinkled, which left only Kitchener as Churchill's sole remaining enemy in Africa that wore a British uniform. And the first favor granted by Bob's was to allow Churchill to lead a column into Pretoria with his cousin Sonny by his side. Churchill expectantly rode straight for the prison camp. Everything looked the same, minus the presence of Haldane and Brocky 
They had managed to escape sometime after Churchill. The camp guards, unaware of the war's current status, challenged Winston and his men. They raised their rifles, but Sonny replied with, Surrender! Soon the commandant showed himself, sized up the situation, and capitulated. Within minutes, the prisoners and their guards had exchanged places, the former POWs now holding the guns. Then one of the new guards, Melville Goodacre, a Yorkshire engineering officer, watched as Winston ran past everyone heading towards the flagpole. He pulled out a Union Jack from the bag, tore down the Boer flag, and raised his countrymen's. Cheers followed. The Union Jack had not flown here since April 5, 1881. Churchill's life would be endangered one more time before he left the war behind him, and that was during the Battle of Diamond Hill. As President Kruger was about to board a Dutch cruiser, General Botha had gathered 7,000 men and taken a height about 15 miles from Pretoria that commanded a view of the rail line. Roberts, seeing this as a mopping-up operation only, sent Hamilton. But soon, the Burgers' guns had the Coldstream Guards and the Scots Guards bogged down. Meanwhile, the British artillery had the rebel infantry equally with their head in the sands. No one on either side could advance or retreat. Suddenly, Hamilton and the men around him saw Churchill midway up the hill, just below the rebels' guns, waving a white handkerchief. He had found a pathway up the hill, while everyone else, on both sides, was busy staying down. And, being Churchill, he scouted it out for himself, instead of informing the ranking officer, as protocol dictated. Hamilton thought Winston mad. If the British guns landed a shell just short of their target, Winston was dead. If the burghers had spotted him, they could have sent down a few men, and again, Winston was dead. But Hamilton, getting over his shock, had men run to the beginning of the path where Churchill was pointing to. The hill was captured as the burghers were taken by surprise. General Hamilton recommended Churchill for the Victorian Cross, but Bobbs and Kitchener said no. Winston was, after all, only a war correspondent. This rejection hurt the young man, who craved the VC for some time. But to the outside world, he responded with, quote, All the danger and one half percent of the glory. Such is our motto. And that is the reason why we expect such large salaries. Unquote. Though not together, Winston and Lord Roberts had decided the war was over, at least for them. Roberts went back to London with his new chief of staff, Hamilton. Churchill began packing, as he saw it, quote, politics, Pamela, finances, and books all need my attention, unquote. And once home, Winston would focus on the last in order to shore up the third item on the list. Politics was a close second, but poor Pamela came in last again. But the Boers were not about to give up. Their army defeated, the capital taken over, all those desirous to resist turned to guerrilla tactics and kept the struggle going for two more years. But unfortunately for them, Kitchener was left in charge. He started up his campaign of burning farms, slaughtering livestock, and imprisoning Boer women and children, of which at least 20,000 died while in camp. Transvaal and the Orange Free State were eventually incorporated back into the empire, but the invincibility of the British army was shattered forever.
Once Churchill was aboard the Donater Castle, he immediately began to write his next book, Ian Hamilton's March, the basis of which were his dispatches since he was separated from General Buller. This book, along with London to Ladysmith, would eventually sell 22,000 copies in the UK and the US. His political war chest was filling up. Landing at Southampton on July 20th, 1900, Churchill was hoping to be met by his mother, always good for a photo op, and to find out from her the country's mood. But Jenny was focused on her own mood, which was excited, as she was preparing for her wedding. The lucky groom was to be a junior officer named George Cornwallis West, roughly Winston's age. And as Jenny spent her time with Cornwallis, she had lent her house at Great Cumberland Place. Churchill, who always thought of it as their place, was shocked and now homeless. But Cousin Sonny, the Duke of Marlborough, came to his rescue by letting him borrow a flat at 105 Mount Street in Mayfair. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the question of an abode settled, Winston only wanted to focus on his work. So he had his aunt Leone redecorate the place. Quote, you cannot imagine how that kind of material arrangement irritates me. So long as my table is clear and there is plenty of paper, I do not worry about the rest. Unquote. But now that he had a place to lay his head, his head, along with the rest of him, was hardly at Mount Street for the next seven months. At least ten different districts wanted him to run in their area and asked him to speak. The speeches were gladly given, but as for where he would stand, there was only one place in Winston's vengeful heart, Oldham. He would now seize what was denied to him previously. His highest point was when speaking at the Theatre Royal. He spoke of his escape, and when he mentioned the mine, he spoke of Dan Dewsnap and his prediction that Oldham would vote him in for sure this time. Someone yelled, quote, His wife's in the gallery, unquote. She stood and bowed. Churchill, smiling, bowed back. The cheers were deafening. Had the election been held at that moment, he would have won overwhelmingly. But momentum like this could not last. The liberals had time to let the Churchillian hurricane blow for a while. And when Winston declared himself on September 19th, the liberals of Oldham were ready for him. They had money, organization, and their own particular popularity. Again, it would be a fight to the end, but at least this time, the young conservative had a chance. From the outset, things did not go the way Churchill had hoped they would. First, his mother refused to join him during his public appearances. She was on an extended honeymoon. Next, his election, in fact, all the elections of the country, were about national and international events. Winston could not just show up and say, remember me, and gather votes. Then the fighting got dirty, as it always does. One of Churchill's posters read, quote, Be it known that every vote given to the radicals means two pats on the back for Kruger and two smacks in the face for our country, unquote. 
But the liberals fought back, saying nasty things about Winston, which clearly stung him. But they justified their actions with the following, in a letter to the conservative candidate. Quote, the ill-advised attempt of your political friends to run this election on the question of your undoubted physical courage instead of upon the political issues involved, unquote. those being social justice and looking out for those citizens who are struggling. And lastly, additional party-wide pressure was hoisted on Winston's shoulders as the election was not conducted in a day, but rather over a six-week period and Oldham would be the first to vote when they went to the polls on October 1st. If Churchill did well, a certain amount of momentum would be created for the Conservatives. If he failed again, well, momentum works both ways. For all of Churchill's adventures and escapes from death, his books and articles, all this caused only about 1,500 votes to swing his way compared to last time. But it was enough. Churchill won by 22 votes. Suddenly, every conservative who was fighting for his political life begged Winston to come and speak in his area. He did, and they, more than not, won their constituency. Thanks to the young man, the son of the humiliated Lord Randolph, Salisbury's Tory Unionist Coalition now held a majority of 134 seats over the Liberals and the Irish Nationalists combined. But as the House of Commons met on December 3rd, as most frantically searched for its newest star, Churchill was somewhere else. He was out literally cashing in on his fame, which he knew wouldn't last forever. With Sonny in tow, Winston traveled over half of the home island, giving speeches, each one well over an hour, every day except Sundays. On most days, he spoke twice. For as much as he wanted to wield some of that awesome power of the British government, a part of him could never forget his family's shortage of cash. They were never poor in any real sense, but certainly had to watch expenses, couldn't do anything they wanted, and after all, everything is relative. Churchill wanted power, he wanted responsibility, he wanted to avenge his father's fall from power, but he craved freedom from want. So that came first. And during his month-long tour of the island, he raised 4,500 pounds. Next, he was bound for the U.S. and Canada. But the nation of his mother's birth came first. Alas, America would be a disappointment to the young celebrity. The U.S. was feeling its own guilt over its current struggle with the Philippines as they struggled for freedom. That, combined with Britain's, or one could say Kitchener's, treatment of the Boers, along with Irish anger over treatment of their home island, meant Churchill would not ride a tidal wave of applause. He did get to meet those worth meeting, President McKinley, Governor Theodore Roosevelt, and his boyhood hero, Mark Twain, who signed for him a copy of a book, quote, To do good is noble. To teach others to do good is nobler and no trouble, unquote. Winston's pain started on December 12, 1900, at the Waldorf Astoria, with a lukewarm introduction by Twain. It only went downhill from there. In Chicago, things got worse, and Churchill was forced to pull out a story about the Dublin Fusiliers saving desperate British troops caught under fire. The room that had been as quiet as a tomb suddenly burst into cheers, but Churchill felt he had prostituted himself. 
By the time Churchill moved on to the north, he had only made a sorrowful 1,600 pounds. But Canada would be everything that Britain had been and that the U.S. was not. He was hailed and fawned over. More importantly, he was well paid at the same time. One introduction went like this. Quote, this young man, at an age when many of his contemporaries have hardly left their studies, has seen more active service than half of the general officers in Europe. Unquote. Winston later wrote, quote, I had not thought of this before. It was good. Unquote. It was ten glorious days of celebrity and cash, exactly what he was looking for. But it came to an end when he found out while in Winnipeg that Queen Victoria had died on January 22, 1901. But as much as Winston was tied to the Victorian age, her death could not really touch him. Not just yet. His youth and success shielded him from anything as deep as grief. Winston sailed home on February 2, 1901, aboard the SS Etruria. He came back to a city, a nation, all dressed in black. Even the London prostitutes, who the Queen pretended didn't exist, wore black. Churchill donned the black as well, but his thoughts and energy went into crafting his maiden speech for the House of Commons. The future was his, and that's where his mind and spirit were. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, a couple notes, and then I want to thank my newest members, and then I'll let you go. Um, on the last two episodes that I did, I owe everybody um, an apology. For Mr. High, the ep episode about uh, the Nazis and the psychiatrist, I was doing my impersonation of Darth Vader while breathing into the microphone. I am really sorry about that. I hope it wasn't too distracting. And I've learned something from that, so I'm very sorry. And then on the next episode with Mr. Muller, Professor Muller, um, I controlled my breathing, but then my neighbor decided to use his power tools uh, uh, as I was recording. So you can hear that in the background a bit, but overall, I think things went okay. And again, I'm really sorry. Um, I've learned a lot from those two experiences. So if I do some um, more interviewing in the, in the future, um, it should be darn near flawless. So again, I just want to apologize to everybody especially the two gentlemen I interviewed. And I know this is coming out late, but it totally slipped my mind. Um, the podcast awards are going on, and I think the the deadline to nominate a show is um, October 12th. So if you happen to hear this and you are so inclined, please go to podcastawards.com and you can nominate the show. There's different categories. Feel free to nominate for whichever one you best think uh, it should go into, and I'd be curious to see what happens. So if you could do that, I would really appreciate it. Um, and of course, Christmas is coming up. If anybody wants to order some discs, it's got the really cool cover that Paul Finch has put together, and it's in a nice case and everything like that. That'd be the perfect Christmas gift for the person you have no idea what else to get them. And so I'd like to thank my newest members, um, who are hopefully enjoying the 18 episodes I've put out so far. So there's David R. from the United Arab Emirates, Yogev R., Donald M., from Bellevue, Washington, John B. from Iowa, Robert P. from Waterford, Connecticut, Jeremy P. from the United Arab Emirates, Nelson J., Robert Y., and Mark D. from Concord, New Hampshire.
So again, I just wanted to say thank you. It does really make a big difference in this household. And if any of you members want to hear something in particular covered, preferably behind the main timeline of the podcast, just shoot me an email and I'd be happy to cover it for you. Okay. And in closing, I just want to say thank you to everyone for your patience. Now that I've gotten through my vacation slash beach time, it's time to get back to work and uh, get these episodes out as, as quickly as I can. I'm enjoying them a lot. I'm learning a lot. It's he, Churchill truly had an amazing life. And uh, we'll get through that, and then we'll jump back into the war. So I will see you as soon as I can with episode 90. Take care, everyone. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.